tip. Uh, our great expectations that we have for this life can be skewed. Uh, can be skewed by the culture, can be skewed by our, our peers, it can even be skewed by our own depravity of heart. And when we think about our text, we find ourselves, Paul or Peter is writing to a group of people who are, who are powerless, they are penniless, and they've been parted from one another. And the readers of this epistle may have, been, may have been, become discouraged because when they looked at the reality of their present circumstances, compared to their desire expectations, there was quite a chasm. And the same holds true for you and I. Uh, think about the times where you've experienced great discouragement or great disappointment because of the chasm between your expectations and reality. Uh, that happens, can happen a lot. Uh, it probably has happened to you to some degree uh, this, this, this year already. Uh, but, but maybe the problem, when we think about this, maybe the problem, like Pip, is that we are focused upon the wrong expectations. It may be that the expectations that we are, we are building our lives on or the expectation where we're, where we're anchoring our hope or the expectations of, of where we think we'll find fulfillment is actually the wrong expectation. And, and the focus of our passage this morning in the verses that we read in 17 through 21, the focus is upon expectation. But the expectation is not our expectations. The expectation is God's great expectation for his children. I'm kind of giving you a grammatical background of this passage. In, in the Greek, it's one long sentence. Uh, verses 17 through 21 is one long sentence, which makes it very difficult to diagram. Uh, it continues the themes of hope and personal holiness. And that hope and personal holiness, those themes are tied with the, the relationship, the father-child relationship that exists between the individual and God. That when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we now have a new relationship. Uh, God is our Father. And, and, and because of that, that we have hope. And, and because of that, we're called to personal holiness. Verse 17, uh, which kind of sets is this new, uh, this new uh, idea, this new thought, it begins with a conditional clause, and if... And if, it begins with a conditional clause that assumes a fact. Uh, it, 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 the kind of clause that it is, basically it's the closest to reality. We're going we're to look at it a little bit later when we look at the text itself. And, and, and a proper way that you can understand this, and instead of saying and if, but and since. Because it expresses this, this reality. It's, it's, it's a first condition, a first class clause. So it begins with a conditional clause that assumes a fact and followed by a command. And again, our text will demonstrate, to that, uh, demonstrate to that, that to us in just a little bit. But the main thought, the main thought of this section is God's expectation that His children live out the time of their sojourn, or as, as uh, ESV translates, the time of our exile, that, that the children live, God's children live out the time of their sojourn in reverent fear and reverent fear. God's expectation for me, God's expectation for you as a child of God, is that we would live out whatever years, how many years God ever gives us on this earth, that we would live out those years in reverent fear of Him. Again, go back and look at the text. It says, and if, or since you call on Him as Father, and then he has a phrase, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And then here's the command, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And since you call on him as father, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, that's, that's the clause that assumes a fact that, that as children of God, you call him father. And we do. That, that's the, that's, the, that's the, the, the conditional clause there. You call him father. And since you call him father, then this is God's expectation of you. Since you call him father, he expects me, he expects you to live out your life on earth under this umbrella. An umbrella of reverential fear towards God. 
Now, Peter, in these verses, explains the logic behind the command. Why should we do that? Why should we live out our lives in fear of God? Well, we are to, fear, we, we, we are to live our lives in fear because, first of all, of the reality. And we'll see that in verse 17. That your Father is also your judge. The one whom we call Father is also the one who is called judge. Our Father is also our judge. We are to live in fear because of the reason. And we'll see that in verses 18 and 19. Your redemption has true value. The most valuable thing that you possess is not your home or homes. The most valuable thing you possess is not your portfolio. The most valuable thing that you possess as a child of God is your redemption. Nothing costs as great. Nothing is of more value than the fact that you are a child of God and the cost that occurred in order for you to become that. And then finally, we're to live our lives out in fear because of the result. In verses 20 and 21, your faith and hope are certain. We've already seen this theme. Uh, very early in, in, in this text, but that your faith and your hope are certain. So let's look at the text this morning. Do you call God your Father? Do you call God your Father? And since, or if, you call God your Father, then conduct yourself in fear because of this reality. Your Father is also your judge. Verse 17, and if you call on Him as Father, or the net translates it this way, and if you address him, so if you address him, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. One commentator summed up this verse this way, our knowledge of him as father must not dispel our dread of him as judge. Our knowledge of him as father must not dispel our dread of him as judge. As we've seen already in this text, we get to call God Father. And he calls us his technon, which is a tender word for children. The term Father informs us regarding our relationship and our identity as God's technon. It informs us that, that, that there is that intimate relationship that we have with him. It informs us of the fact that we belong to Him. It, it, it's a term that's a, a, of tenderness. It's a term of belonging. It's a term of a sense of identity. I am a child of God. And I have that relationship with Him. He is my loving, heavenly Father. But this intimate relationship with God does not give us the license to live as we please. God is not some father who kind of winks and turns, uh, turns uh, away and allows us to kind of live however, that, that he want, however we want to live. We've already seen in verse 2 of chapter 1 that we are empowered by the Spirit to obedience. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. God has made us His children and has set us apart by the Spirit so that we might walk in obedience to Christ. Uh, the fact that I call Him Father doesn't give me carte blanche to live however I want to live. In fact, we are called to live a life of holiness. And I know this isn't good English, but, but we've put it this way hopefully to remember it. We behave according to who we be since we share the Father's character. We behave according to who we be since we share the character of our Father. And we found that in verses 14 through 16, where it talks about, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So my behavior is to be in, in accordance to the character of my father. I, I, I'm to look, we talked about that like, like last week, like father, like son. That we are to look like our father. But the truth is, 
one of the things that, I don't know if, if you battle with it, that I battle, but, but I battle with it, is on the one hand, we, God is a loving, gracious, merciful, heavenly Father, full of compassion, full of mercy, full of grace. But on the other hand, He's also the righteous judge, the righteous judge. And this one whom I call Father is also judge. It's, he's also judge. And, and, and in order to keep familiarity with the, with the fact that God is my Father from becoming an excuse to sin. Oh, you know, God, I mean, God's a merciful, he, He's going to forgive me. Or when I sin, oh God, yeah, I kind of messed up again this time. Okay, please, please forgive me. And there's really no brokenness. It, it, it's kind of a, okay, I know I need to confess my sin. If, if, if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So here we go, let's confess. And so here I am, God, would you please forgive me? You know, sorry I did what I did. Okay, uh, you know, uh, let, let's, let's go on to the next thing we've got to get done today. We can, we can have a familiarity with God. We... we, we we, we need to have that familiarity with Him in the sense that, that He invites us to come boldly to the throne of grace. That He is a faithful and compassionate and merciful and kind God. But at the other hand, He's a God to be feared. He's a God that hates sin. He's a God that's opposed to it. And so Peter reminds us so that we don't become so familiar that we think that we can live any way we want to, or sin really isn't that sinful to us anymore, Peter reminds us that the one who is our Father is also our judge. He's our judge. He's a judge, look at the text, he's a judge who is impartial. Look at what the text says, and if you call on him as Father, he judges impartially. Impartially. He shows no favoritism. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life when I've been able to skate by on something because I knew the person. You ever had that experience? You know, you knew somebody, you had a relationship with them, and because you knew them, and if it was anybody else, this is what would have happened. But because you knew them, and because they had, you had a relationship with them, they kind of let you skate by on that one, you know? You, you, you got away with it. Or maybe instead of, instead of you know, uh, something happening real bad to you, you just kind of got, you know, got your hand slapped a little bit. Maybe you've had that experience. I've had that experience where because I knew something. You know, it, it's, not what you, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Okay? Because you knew somebody, you were able to maybe skate out. Some, or maybe you've had the opposite thing occur. I can remember once, this has been years ago when the kids were small, we didn't have, you know, again, kids were growing up, kids are small, you don't usually have a lot of money, and we took a vacation to Granbury, and we were going to go splurge, and we were going to rent jet skis, and go run jet skis out there, and I mean, we were, uh, we, we, were, uh, we were splurging to do that. And the person right in front of us, uh, as I'm listening to him, he's talking, he was also a pastor, and I knew, I knew of the church that he pastored, and it was a large church. And he had, he had been in Granbury at this particular church uh, as, as, uh, on staff, and the guy that ran the thing knew him and attended the same church. So this guy is pastoring a lot, a lot larger church. Uh, he, he, I'm sure he's making a lot more money than I am. And the guy says, you don't have to pay. He tells that guy, you don't have to pay. And I'm thinking here, golly, that sure stinks, you know. Here I am, you know, I mean, Lisa and I, we're struggling along here. We got these three small kids, and, and I'm a pastor too. Why can't he give that to me free? And there's a good reason. He didn't give it, I mean, he didn't even ask what I did. You know why I did? Because I didn't know him. And the guy was being, it was his friend, and he showed partiality to him because he knew him, and he wanted to be a blessing to him, and he showed partiality. God's not that way. You don't get by with it because you're this or you're that or you do this or you do that with God. God holds us all to the same standard. There's not a standard for this class of people and a standard for this class of people. There's not a standard for, for this vocation and for that vocation. God is impartial. He shows, I, 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 can't, I can't grin my way out of it. 
I can't talk my way out of it. If I was female, I can't bat my eyes and, and smile and get out of it. I can't do it. I can't do it. But not only does the Bible say that God is a judge who's impartial, uh, impartial he's, a ju- he's a judge who is accurate in his assessment. Look at the text again. He says, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to. According to. And he's going to tell us that that's each one's deeds. But God is accurate in his assessment. He's the sovereign God who has set the standard, who has set the, the, the bar, and God judges according to that way. He's accurate. Because he's omniscient, because he ne- neither slumbers nor sleeps, because he knows the beginning from the end, when he judges me, he's accurate in his assessment. He not only knows what I do, he knows why I do it. He knows what I'm hoping to get out of it for doing something. He's accurate. He's set a standard and he is the author of that standard and he's going to maintain that standard and he's thorough because it says each one's deeds plural. God not only knows what I do, God knows everything that I do. There's not a moment when I'm out of His sight. There's not a moment when when I can hide from Him. There's not a moment when I'm invisible to Him. There's not a moment when my thoughts and feelings and motives are not readable to Him. There's not a moment. And while at the same time He is my Father, and He loves me, and He cares for me, and He's compassionate towards me, and He's merciful to me, and He's gracious to me, and He's kind to me, and He's forgiving of me over and over and over and over and over again. Peter wants us to make sure as we live out our lives to remember that God's expectation of me is that I might live in fear of Him. He's not only my Father, He's my judge. He's my judge. And because he's my judge, I need my manner of life, my conduct, needs to be one of fear. He disciplines me now. That's part of his judgment. And there's loss of reward in the future. Because I'm his child, Hebrews tells me, if, if I'm not his child, and one of the evidences that makes it know that I'm not his child is that there's no discipline. You don't... God disciplines His children. But too often, too often we fear the assessment or judgment of others. Yet when we live this way, we're living for the wrong expectation. We're living for the wrong expectation. Do you call God your Father? If the answer is yes then conduct yourself in fear for this reality. Your Father is also your judge, but also for this reason. Your redemption has true value. Look at verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Our fear before God is not based simply on the recognition of judgment. I need to fear God, but it's not just simply because God can put the whammy on me, okay? Because God can discipline me, or that there's loss of reward. My fear of God also should be out of deep gratitude and wonder of what God has done for me. Of what God has done for me. VSV translates the word, uh, the, the word ransomed there. He says, knowing that you were ransomed in verse 18. This word was used in the culture to, the, to describe the manumission or freeing of slaves. If you were a slave back in that culture and you wanted to, and you wanted to buy your freedom, this is what you would do. You would take the money, whatever your redemption price was, that would have been set by, the, by your owner. Whatever that redemption price was, you would take that and you would take it to the local god, the temple of the local god or goddess, little g. 
and you would give that money to that priest or priestess of that, that local god or goddess, and then they would take that money, they would, take, uh, uh, they would give that money to the former owner, they'd also cut themselves a percentage as the middleman there, so they would cut themselves a percentage, they would keep that percentage, they would give the rest of that money to the owner, that, that slave then was, was free, he was no longer the slave of that individual, but culturally, because that money went to the god or that goddess, uh, that, that temple, that god or that goddess, they were now considered, even though they were free, they were now considered a slave to the god or goddess. So here... And, and so, so the slave owner could feel pretty good because he had basically, had, in one sense, sold his slave to the reigning god or goddess of that region or that area. He was no longer his slave, but he was a quote-unquote slave of that god or goddess. And the word that, that Peter uses here is a divine passive. In other words, he, he's using what's taking place in the culture to give an example. As a child of God, I have been set free from a past master to serve as a slave to God. I'm not, I'm not free in the sense that, that I can now go live however I want to live. Paul talks about in Romans, we've been transferred from, from, the, from the kingdom of sin to the kingdom of grace. I'm a slave. I've always been a slave. Prior to salvation, I was a slave to my passions. I was a slave to sin. Since my conversion, I'm still a slave. But my master now is the triune God. I'm still a slave. But now he's my master. That's why Paul calls himself a doulos. A slave, a bondservant, a bondslave of Jesus Christ. So, this relationship, this redemption, I've been redeemed. I'm still a slave but I have been purchased and bought by God. And the value of that ransom price, there was a ransom price that was put upon me, there was a ransom price that was put upon you, and the value of our ransom price is evidenced by what it is contrasted to. Look at, look at verse 18 again. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That's what it's contract. Here's what I was ransomed from. I was ransomed from my manner of life prior to conversion. That's what I'm ransomed from. From the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, my former way of life is sourced in my humanity. It's sourced in my humanity. It's translated forefathers in the ESV. Some other, some other uh, translations have it as ancestral. But in other words, it's something that's passed down to us. This word was also used in the culture to describe those things that were venerated and esteemed as the basis of a stable society. Uh, those things such as uh, 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 hard work, uh, honesty, uh, uh, you know... Being able, fairness, justice, those things that, that cultures, that, that good cultures, the stability of a culture, you know, uh, 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 and, and adherence to law, to the rule of law. That's how that word was used. But, but yet these are the very things, these things that are venerated, but let, yet look how they're described. He says, from the feudal ways, feudal ways. The, the word that's, that's translated feudal is the word mateos. Matai, I'm sorry, Matthias, Matthias. And, and, and feudal really doesn't, it, it gives us a, a, a translation, but it really doesn't sum up the full meaning of that word. This word means lacking force, or lacking truth, or lacking success, or lacking result. It speaks of those things that are useless, or of no purpose. The idea is the same idea that Paul says when he lists all the things, all the things prior to his conversion. Uh, you know, uh, a Pharisee of the Pharisee, uh, a descendant of, 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 of Benjamin. Of, of Benjamin. Uh, uh, he adhered to the law. And all these things that, that, that culture and society would have said, man, Paul, you are something. And Paul says, I count all these things as dung. 
and dung. Compared to what I have in Christ, all these things that are venerated, all these things that are esteemed by the culture, all these things that were mine, that were passed down to me from my forefathers, it's dung. It's worthless. It's of no account. And that's the same idea that Peter is using here. It's sourced in our humanity and and has the quality of futileness. That's how our life prior to conversion is described, and that's what we have been ransomed from. That's what we have been redeemed from. But also the value of our ransom price is evident by what it costs. Look again in the text. He says, Not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The structure is very strong. It says, not with this, but with this. Here's the cost. Here's here's the ransom price that was placed upon me. Here's the ransom price that was placed upon you. As we gave you the the illustration earlier, the, the, the slave owner would determine what that ransom price was for that individual. For that individual to obtain their freedom, this was the price that had to be paid. And Peter says, we were ransomed as well, but not with this. Not with this, but with this. And he makes this strong contrast. We were ransomed not by something that is subject to decay. He says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but by blood. By blood. Now, if I were to have Carl Willis in a wheelbarrow of, of gold and a wheelbarrow of silver and a wheelbarrow of bags of units of blood, and I, and I said, listen, you can take home whichever one you want to take home today. I guarantee you the barrel that probably would still be full would be the one of blood. <laughs> we'd grab us a bar of gold or we'd grab us a bar of silver, but unless there was some really, really good reason why we needed that blood. That blood would stay in that wheelbarrow. But you know what? When somebody's on the operating table, they don't want gold. They don't want silver. They want blood. About every eight weeks, I, give a, I go to Carter Blood Care and give whole blood. I've been doing it for decades. Lisa went with me this last time. And one of the things that I know is that my blood is going to be used to help somebody to either maintain, it's going to be used to help them to maintain life. My blood will go into their veins so that life can be maintained. Life can be preserved. Blood can be precious. And my, while, while my blood will help give life, Precious blood of Jesus ransoms one from the slave market of a feudal life to become a child of God. The cost of my redemption was the blood of Jesus Christ. And it was the blood, and then Peter uses the Old Testament sacrificial system as, 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 the, as the illustration. He's the, his blood is the blood that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In other words, it's, it's perfect. It accomplishes. His blood can do what no other blood can accomplish because of who He is. The perfect, sinless sacrifice. The perfect one. The sinless one. The one who gave Himself for us. That's what it cost in order for your life and my life to be redeemed from the futility of our lives prior to conversion. That's the cost. That's the ransom price. That's what it took to set me free from the slave market of sin. And when we understand, when we truly understand what it cost God to redeem us, we then begin to get a little bit of the realization of the intensity of His interest 
in how we lead our lives. I mean, think about it. How, if we invest something into somebody, if somebody says, hey, can I borrow $10,000 from you? I, I really need this. I'm trying to make, I, I want to make an investment. I, I want to, and, and we invest that money in with them. We're going to have a big interest in what's going on. Especially if we pretty much give them all that we've got. We, we, have a, we have a huge interest in what's going on. That's why, uh, you know, I, I know a lot with, with my older son's business, businesses that he has. You know, they have investors. And they don't do any work. They expect them to do the work, but, they haven't, but these people have, get, get profit from that. It's not as much as those that do the work, but they get profit from that because they are making a huge investment. And they have, and we've heard the term, a vested interest in what's taking place to make sure that everything goes the way that it should go because they have invested a great deal of money into this thing. And that's exactly the picture here. God has invested much in our lives. It cost Him the blood of His Son to redeem. And He has, because of the cost, He has great interest in how I lead my life. Again, the reason, the reason why we should live in fear is because our redemption has true value to continue to live in one's formal, feudal ways is to cheapen the value of Christ's death, our ransom price. When I choose, when I'm not serious about how I conduct my life, when I'm not serious about how I live my life, when I'm not serious about what I do with the things that God has placed in my life, when I'm not serious about how I make the Scriptures the foundation of my decisions and, and, and how I seek to, to walk after Him. When I'm not serious about that, I cheapen. I'm telling to God, what price that was paid for me is cheap. It's cheap. It's what Hebrews talks about when we trample underfoot the blood of Christ. We count it, uh, count it as something of no value. We count it as something that's just common. And yet the only thing, as we used to sing, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. Do you call God your Father? If so, then conduct yourself in fear for this reality. Your Father is also your judge. If so, also for this reason, because your redemption has great value. And, and if so, conduct yourself in fear considering the result. Your faith and hope are certain. Look at verse 20 and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead, at speaking of Jesus, and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. I want you to listen to this statement. While we are saved only by faith in Christ, the desire to live a godly life springs from faith and hope in God that He will keep His promises. While we are saved only by faith in Christ, the desire to live a godly life springs from faith and hope in God that He will keep His promises. Why should I persevere? Because God will keep His promises. Why should I face suffering and, and uncertainty with trust in God? Because God keeps His promises. Why should I walk in obedience when it might cost me my job? Because God keeps His promises. Why should I, 
I, I, I be loving to my wife when, when she doesn't deserve it because God keeps his promises. Why should my, my wife be loving to me when I'm ugly? Because God keeps his promises. Why should I do the hard work of raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Because God keeps his promises. Why should I give to the work of the Lord? Because God keeps his promises. Why should I share the gospel with people? Because God keeps his promises. Why should, why should I endure when my circumstances and, 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 and it doesn't seem like God is answering any of my prayers? Because God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And Peter mentions three things about God in verses 20 and 21. The first thing is, is his plan cannot be thwarted. His plan cannot be thwarted. He says, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The idea is not just that God knew ahead of time, but God chose in advance. With God knowing ahead of time and making it happen is the same thing. Prediction and predestination are equated in the scriptures. He says, he says, he was foreknown. He was chosen in advance before the foundation of the world. The cross in the mind of God existed long before Jesus ever came to this earth. Long before the world was ever created. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. Before Adam ever sinned, the cross was in the plan of God. Before Adam drew his first, first breath, the cross was in the plan of God. Before God ever spoke the world into existence, the cross was in the plan of God. It's not an accident. It's not plan B. It's always been plan A, the cross. He says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Before the world ever was created, the cross was in the plan of God and the demonstration of God's purposes and plans coming to pass. Peter says, you've seen it. I've seen it. Jesus came, and Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. It was made manifest. The plan of God was made manifest. His plans can't be thwarted. They may not have, all the purposes may not have come to pass yet, but they will. They will. His plan cannot be thwarted. His power cannot be limited. Look at what he says. Who through him are believers? Through Jesus, we are believers of God, and God is the one who raised him from the dead. How much power does it take to bring someone who is dead back to life? How much power does that take? How much power does it take to take somebody who's been dead and bring him back to life. Have you ever seen it? I haven't. I haven't. Science can't figure it out. There's no pill. You, you, you don't, you've never gone to a funeral and somebody stuff a pill down their throat and boom, they sit up. And they say, I'm hungry. Where's, where's dinner at after the funeral? You know? It doesn't happen. It can't happen. We do not understand the power of bringing some, someone who is dead back to life. God is the one who raised him from the dead. And even if these believers that Peter is writing to lose their life, they can rest assured that God is going to bring them back from the dead. His power cannot be limited and his promises cannot be annulled. This God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Suffer and then exaltation. Obedience, glory. It's God's promise. It's the promise that, that the writer of Hebrews talks about. It's the promise that Jesus, who, 
For the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is exalted now at the right hand of the throne of God, that you suffer and you will be exalted. And in the person of Jesus Christ, we see God's promises being fulfilled. And Peter is reminding them, as we've already seen so far in this chapter, reminding them that, that if they will persevere in their suffering, that God will grant them glory. God will grant them glory. His plan cannot be thwarted. His power cannot be limited. His promises cannot be annulled. And then he says, so that, look at the text, it's, 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 a, it's a so that of result. So that your faith and hope are in God. It speaks of result because God is who He is. His plan can't be thwarted. His power can't be limited. His promises cannot be annulled because of who God is and because you have trusted God through Jesus Christ who bought you. You've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. You've been ransomed from the former way of life. That's that's the contrast. You've been ransomed from the former way of life. And because of that, the result of that is, because of who God is and what He's done, your faith in Him is certain and your hope in Him is certain. We should conduct our lives in reverential fear to God because He will accomplish His purpose, enable His people, and keep His promises. When I am wanting to go my own way, when I am wanting to live according to the former feudal way passed down to me from my ancestors, when I am wanting to, to, to not walk in holiness, when I'm wanting to have my own way, I need to remember and I need to live in fear of God. Not only because He's my judge, not only because He's the price of my redemption is of great value, but also because God keeps His promises, God's power is not limited, and God's plan cannot be thwarted by anyone. Therefore, as the text says, so that your faith and hope are in God, regardless of the circumstances you're facing. God, I'm going to persevere. I'm going to walk in obedience to you by the power of Christ, by your grace, as you enable me, because you've promised to do so. You promised your power as only baptized, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in his likeness to walk in newness of life. Part of that formula means the same power that brought Christ out of the grave, and scripture teaches it, is the same power that enables you and I to live lives that are pleasing unto God. For a child of God, there is no such thing as not being able to change unless you don't want to. Unless you don't want to. I don't care how bad it is, how difficult it is, how long it's been entrenched in your life. If God can raise people from the dead, He can change me. He can change my marriage. He can change my home. He can change my attitude. He can change my disposition. He can change, He can make me into a person who is kind. He can make me into a person who is loving. He can make me into a person who is patient. He can, the fruit of the Spirit can become a part of my life. What is your great expectation? Our expectations will be correct when we focus on God's great expectation for us. What's our great expectation to fulfill the American dream, to uh, you know, have kids who love and respect us, uh, you know, be able to take good vacations, uh, be able to you know, live a, a peaceful life, 
you know, what are our expectations? Well, God's great expectation for me is to live out the time of my sojourn in fear to and of him. Is your life, is my life, being conducted according to your or your father's great expectation? Whose expectation? Yours or your father's? Our great expectation, hopefully, when we live here today is ask God to make our aim our aim his great expectation to live in fear before him he's your father but he's also your judge and God paid a price of greatest value when he purchased you from your former futile way of life value to you or is it trampled on by him and I trample on it when I choose to live the way I want to live and have I put my faith and hope my great expectation in the fact that my faith and my hope plans can't be thwarted. His power is not limited. And his promises cannot be null. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and for the wonder of who you are. Lord, teach us to fear you with the kind of biblical fear that is called in this passage of Scripture. Help us not to become so familiar with you that we don't give you the respect and honor that is due you. Father, this is, this is a tightrope that, 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 that I walk and that I'm te- I tend to swing to one side or the other. Help us, Father, find that balance your love and your justice your righteousness and your compassion and mercy not that they're they're not opposite they don't fight each other they're all part of who you are your your righteousness is an act of, of grace towards us your justice is an act of mercy towards us Father I pray that you would help us to think about how we fear you this week in order that we would do so for the reasons stated in our text today. Father, help us to walk, as the scripture says, old King James, help us to walk circumspectly and not as fools. Help us to be wise in how we walk. Help us to be careful in how we live out our lives and not to do so foolishly. Not like dogs running back to its vomit go back to the futile ways in which we lived prior to our conversion. But Father, to live out our lives in ways that reflect your character. Thank you, Father, for your work of grace in our lives this week. Lord, we thank you for where you've forgiven us. Lord, help us to remember the cost necessary in order for us to be forgiven and what we miss out on when we choose disobedience selfishness, self-centeredness Lord if there's somebody here today that doesn't know Christ, show them their need Lord help them to see that you're angry with them this morning Yet, Lord, at the same time, you've demonstrated your love towards them by sending your Son. 
they abide under your wrath. As they refuse the sacrifice that was accomplished by your Son on the cross, who was desperate on resurrection and ascension, and Lord, refuse to make that the basis of their acceptance before you. They, they die with your wrath upon them. And die and live out in eternity of separation from you in torment. So Father, we ask now that you would help us as we not only examine our hearts in light of the message, but examine our hearts in light of the Lord's table. Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are and for what you're doing in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, again, we don't have an altar call, but we we do want to invite you to, to speak to the Lord this morning. Whatever your need is today, come to Him. He is a gracious and merciful God, but He also is a God that doesn't play around. doesn't play around. But when you come to Him, He will in no wise cast you out. When you come to Him with a broken and contrite heart, you come to Him with your need. He won't turn you away, regardless of the past. He won't turn you away. So we're going to have a time of silence, and then we'll continue our our worship as we observe the Lord's table.